theologians, I'd like to remind you of those worship notes out in the, the foyer. If you'd like to follow along and take notes, those are available for you. We have hope, amen? Christmas can be a time of intense struggle, especially with family. If, if we've lost a family member, if our family is not doing well, if we have some sick family member, it can be a, a time of increased sorrow. But the message of Christmas is one of hope that God is with us, that Jesus is Emmanuel, and we have hope. We gather to remember and proclaim that hope. Whenever I was in college, I had a number of professors, some good, some bad. I've been in school a long time, so I've had a lot of professors. And as I've gone through schooling, my favorite professors have had a, a characteristic that they've all shared. And those professors have been difficult professors. They've had high standards. My favorite professors are the ones who make me learn. I, I, I might not enjoy it in the moment, but as time goes on and I reflect on the class and I reflect on my education, I got the most out of the classes where the professor demanded something out of me, demanded that I learn the material. And I'm thankful for that. We learn that way. And God is kind of like that type of professor. God, too, has very, very high standards, eternally high standards. The standards that God has proceed from himself. And because God is the most infinite, excellent being, his standards and rules are also infinitely excellent. God calls us as Christians to a very high standard. And this morning we are going to explore one of those high standards. Go ahead and turn with me to Philippians 1, 27. Philippians 1, 27. We're just going to be exploring a a concise thought this morning. We won't even be covering all of verse 27, just the first part. Philippians 1.27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the idea we're going to be unpacking this morning. And to put it succinctly, what Paul is calling us to here is he's calling us that our lives correspond with the value and worth of the gospel. Our response to the gospel is to the degree of the worth of the gospel. That's the idea. Now we need to unpack this more. I have three points for you this morning. This is the first point. Write this. The infinite worth of the gospel. The infinite worth of the gospel. If you were to quantify and compute the gospel's worth, what would be the result? What is the end? What is the answer? How much value and worth does the gospel have? If I am to respond to the gospel 
in a way that's fitting to its worth, what is its worth? That's the question that we want to answer with this first point. Look in Philippians 2.5. We're going to go all the way through verse 11 to understand its worth. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel generally means good news. That's what this Greek word means in the most, the largest definition is it's good news. But good news cannot have much bearing upon our lives, our souls. I love sales. I love whenever the items that I want to buy online go on sale, and that's good news. But that, that news can't affect my soul. That doesn't bring about change in my life. So we need a certain type of good news. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it's the good news of his person, who he is, and his work, what he has done. So his person and work, the gospel is the story of the person and work of Christ. So let's explain his person. Who is Jesus? A fitting question this time of year. Philippians 2.5, read with me there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, so Paul is proceeding to explain who Christ is, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you see that statement, the form of God? What that means is that prior to his incarnation, the Son of God existed. And the reason why the Son of God existed prior to his incarnation, prior to him being born of the Virgin Mary, is because he is deity. Jesus is God. That is a central confession that we make as Christians. Jesus is not just some good teacher. But Jesus is God. And that's what Paul is saying here, that he existed in the form of God. This is past tense. This is prior to his incarnation. So remember that form of God. Verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So we have two forms here. We have Jesus being the form of God. Verse 6. And then in verse 7, it says that he took the form of a servant. So what does this mean, Pastor? It means that Jesus is both God and man. Look again in verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men. The type of servant that Jesus is, is the type that's the likeness of men. Jesus is man. And his person is a perfect symmetry of deity and humanity. Jesus is both God and man. And if you get rid of one of those sides of the equation, you don't have the gospel anymore. If you say that he's just a good teacher, he's just a really good guy, you lose the gospel's power. If you say, well, he's not actually man, He's just God in a human body. You lose the gospel's relevance. Jesus is both God and man. 
We affirm that. That's central to Christmas. That's central to our confession as Christians. So that's who he is. Now, what did he do for us? What has Christ done that makes him so worthy? Well, first, he became a man. God had no obligation to incarnate himself in human flesh. By becoming a man, Jesus brings upon himself suffering, the potential for death and disease and sickness and misery. There was no obligation that Jesus had to do this. But he became a servant. Verse 8. And being found in human form, what did he do as a human? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Jesus lived to earn for you salvation and righteousness. Jesus came to this earth to earn for you the righteousness that you cannot earn. He came to serve. And his service went all the way to the point of death by becoming obedient, again, verse 8, to the point of death. What this passage, the way we can understand this passage is as a U-shape, okay? Jesus begins in the form of God. But then he becomes, he takes on the form of a servant. And he becomes obedient to the point of death. He humbles himself even lower. Now this death is not some just, well, he died in his sleep. What type of death was it? Even death on a cross. So the perfect son of God took upon himself the potential for death in the incarnation. And that he submitted himself to the point of death. And this was the death of a cross. The highest, most glorious human who is also God submitted himself to the Roman cross. Now for a Roman, the cross was the execution reserved specifically for slaves. Slaves were those who were put on a cross. It was the most heinous, most shameful form of death. But this is what Christ did. As a servant, as a slave, he submitted himself to the death reserved for slaves. That's what Christ has done for you. But we don't stop there. That's a gospel with no hope. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 9 is referencing the resurrection. The father did not abandon his son, he raised him from the dead. And he has seated him above all earthly powers. And his authority, his power is so great. Verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. So what we have here is this U-shape pattern. The Son of God existed with His Father 
before his incarnation. He humbled himself by becoming a man. His obedience extended to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what the Father has done is he has highly exalted Jesus because of his obedience. And now he reigns as the sovereign Lord. And he is the cosmic judge of every person. Whether you confess Christ now or not, you will at one point in the future do it. Every knee shall bow to his authority. Everyone, everybody will recognize that Jesus is Lord. He is the cosmic Lord of the universe. How do we compute this? How do you quantify this? Words really lack significance here. We struggle describing what this means, the value of it. The only word that I can think of that describes this value of the gospel is eternal or infinite. Now, those are very ambiguous words. We don't know what eternal and infinite mean. We use them as ways of describing a concept that we do not know. But so far as words can describe the worth of the gospel, that is what it is. It has infinite worth. There is nothing more valuable in this life than the message of the gospel. That is its value. That is its worth. Second point for you. Write this. Our response to the gospel. First point was the infinite worth of the gospel. The second point, our response to the gospel. If the gospel is this valuable, this worthy, this eternally significant, what does that mean for me? How should I respond? Paul says, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So summarizing what I said at the beginning, our response to the gospel fits the value of the gospel. The gospel is of tremendous value. The mat, the the degree of sacrifice and obedience that calls us to give to God is infinite. The bar is very high, and our responsibility to meet that bar is extreme. In verse 27, Paul says this. He says, only. You see that how he begins verse 27 with that word? What Paul is saying to us is he's trying to draw our attention to what he's saying in verse 27. He's using this as a means of transition. What Paul is doing in verse 27, he's transitioning from talking about himself to giving a commandment. He's saying, listen up. Look at right here. This is what I'm saying to you. Focus right here. And what he says is that our manner of life should be worthy of the gospel. Now, what does this manner of life mean? This is a hard verb to understand. Go to Philippians 3.20 to better understand it. The verb in 127 is the same word that occurs in 320 as a noun. So in 127, we have the verb form of a word, and in 320, we have the noun form of the word. Now look at 320, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word for citizenship occurs as a verb 
and 127. So what this means is this. What Paul is saying is he's saying to us and to the Philippians, live out your heavenly citizenship in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Put differently, as citizens of heaven, live as citizens of Philippi in a way that is worthy of the gospel. The Bible says that Christians have a split identity, a split citizenship, that we are citizens of this world. We have a national citizenship, and that is true. We have civic responsibilities upon us. But our true identity is in heaven, where Christ is. That is our true identity. And what Paul is saying, in this life, we are to operate as citizens of heaven, faithfully here as citizens of this world. That's what Paul is saying. Now, to what degree, pastor, to what degree of faithfulness and obedience? In the degree that matches the value and worth of the gospel. This commandment, to live in a manner that expresses the worth of the gospel is not a half-hearted, fair-weather type Christianity. God's standards for you as a Christian are infinite. They're exceedingly great. And your call as a Christian is to faithfully live in that manner. This demands of us a radical, sold-out, all-in form of Christianity. Not the half-hearted, fair-weather, easy-come, easy-go Christianity. This is cancer. This easy-come, easy-go Christianity is cancer. It's a false form. Look at what Paul is telling us here. Respond to the gospel in a way that, that recognizes the value and worth of the gospel. This is an extreme commandment that demands from us being sold out for Christ. And it raises the larger theological point. Salvation is free. Jesus paid it all. Amen? It's all of grace. Jonathan Edwards says this. This is so brilliant. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. It's free. Jesus came not because you deserve it. And he gives you his life and his death and his resurrection because he is so worthy. It's free. Now that song, Jesus paid it all. You know what the next line is? Jesus paid it all. What's the next line? All to him I owe. 
what Jesus does is he gives us the gift of eternal life. It is a gift. You do nothing to deserve it. But once you accept it, the gospel makes extreme demands upon your life. While it is free, it also has its demands. And the demands upon the Christian are total and radical obedience. To explain this a bit better, Jesus is like an invasive house guest. Jesus is like an invasive house guest. Picture the, this house that you have as your life. And what Jesus does is he knocks on the door. And we open up the door and we see how infinitely worthy Jesus is. That he has died for us. And that he's imminently pleasant. He's eternally pleasing. And he says to us, if you let me in, I will forgive your sins. I will cleanse your house. I will give you a clean conscience. I will give you joy and peace and mercy. And we see him and we say, yes, Jesus, come in my house. Come in my life. And we sit in the living room. And as we sit in the living room, this is where we're comfortable. Now, in the other parts of the house, our house might be dirty. And we might have some doors that are locked. We don't like people going in those doors. We don't like people knowing about that. That the, the filth in those rooms, the clutter. And as we're talking with Jesus, we begin to see, we, 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 we again see how pleasant he is, how infinitely loving. And we talk and we converse. But we can notice that Jesus begins to get agitated. He gets restless. And he says to us, can I look around your house? Can I go in these other rooms? And oh, Jesus, no, I, I'm kind of comfortable with you just right in the living room, Lord. You don't, you don't need to go back there. But he doesn't listen to you. He goes in, in the doors, but he realizes they're locked. And you have the key. You have the key. And Jesus says, let me in here. Let me in this door. Let me know what's behind this door. And you say, no, Jesus, I don't, I don't want you there. I don't want you to know what's back there. I don't want to let you in. Listen, you can have the whole house except for that room. And what he says to us. Am I not worthy? Do you know what I've done for you? I've bled and died for your sins. Let me in this room. Let me in this door. Give me the key. Give me the master key. And what Paul is calling us to here is to give it all to him. Not to have this half-hearted, fair-weather Christianity, this little bit of fighting sin, and this little bit of evangelism, and this little bit of generosity, but that we give Jesus the master key, and we say, Jesus, you take it all. You go in any room you want to go, and you cleanse my house of my impurity. That's the type of Christianity that Paul is calling us to here. Our response to the gospel is based upon its value and worth. And because Jesus is of exceeding value and eternal value, our obedience and faithfulness knows no limits. But there's a, there's a difficulty with this text. So our response to the gospel 
is total. We give Jesus the master key. But there's a problem here. We cannot, we cannot obey the gospel to the degree that it's worth. Jesus is of such value and worth that no matter how much you obey him and follow him, you still will never measure up. That's a problem. So pastor, how do, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this that I'm supposed to respond to the gospel in a way that, that fits its value and worth? But the sin in my life prevents me from doing that. I am not perfect, pastor. How do I do this? How do I obey Christ whenever he's exceedingly valuable? How do I obey this commandment in light of that issue? That's real. We are all sinners. And in this life, there is an inevitability of sin. So long as we live in the flesh, we will fail. So to a certain degree, Philippians 1.27 is calling us to an impossible commandment to obey. There's a certain degree of impossibility here. And for the Christian who struggles, who says that, Pastor, I have this sin in my life that won't go away. I want to obey Philippians 1.27. But, Pastor, I'm struggling. A couple thoughts for you, Christian. Look in 1.6. Philippians 1.6. Here we have this promise. And I'm sure of this. If Paul is sure of this, you should be sure of it. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise for you, Christian. For the Christian who struggles, who gets up every day and fights their sin, but perpetually loses, God will complete his work in you. You can bank your entire life on this passage. Inform your guilty conscience of this truth that salvation is by grace alone and that God will complete his work in your life. There's more, though. Go to 2.13. How does God fulfill 1.6 in our lives? How does God complete the work of salvation that he begins in the lives of believers? How does he do it? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The working of God in verse 13, is that something that happens outside of us or inside of us? The work that God does in verse 13 that Paul describes, is this a work that happens outside of us or inside of us? It happens inside of us. This willing and working is something that happens in your heart. Verse 13 is talking about God bringing about godly desires in your heart. Another way to translate this passage. 
For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort is God. Desire and effort are something that come from us. And the point is this. God brings about his work in our lives in two ways. Through victory over sin and through a desire for victory over sin. Verse 13 2.13 is not describing the victory. It's describing the desire. In this life, we are not guaranteed victory over sin. Till the day I die, I'm going to sin. And that's true of you as well. Now, we can have victory, and we should pursue victory. But another way to understand victory is in the heart. What do you want to happen. The paradox of the Christian life is sometimes we do things we don't want to do. And sometimes we want to want to do the right thing, but we don't. But dear Christian, that desire is the work of God. We are bound to fail in this life. God does not redeem us the moment we accept Christ. There is a purpose to your failure and sin. God is at work in your life, Christian. And the way he is at work might not be in the victory. Rather, it's in the desire. Christian, do you want to obey Philippians 1.27? Do you want to live in a way that glorifies Christ to the degree that he deserves? If you answer yes, God is at work in you. Have hope. Victory is coming, but God is at work in your life. Now go to 2.12. This work in our hearts is not exclusive to your effort. You will never be perfect in this life, but what God calls you to do is fight every day to honor him with all that you have. Verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What you're called to do, Christian, the way you respond to 127 is that you first realize that sometimes God, sometimes God is at work in your life, not in the victory, but in the desire for victory. And that God will keep you. God keeps Christians. And your responsibility is to continue fighting to continue striving every day that you have breath to obey Philippians 1.27. And the fight and the desire is a small, insignificant, yet true expression of giving to Jesus the glory that he deserves. Is it total? Is it pure? Is it complete? No. All of eternity will be a means of obeying Philippians 1.27. But in this life, our obedience can be true. And you can truly, yet partially, obey Philippians 1.27. And you do that through the fight. Through the fight. Through the desire and the fight. Never give up, Christian. Keep going.
I, I really enjoy listening to music. I, we listen to it in our home. I'm not the most musically inclined. Catherine, you can say amen to that. But I do enjoy listening to music. And there's one new group, Christian group, that, I've, that someone has, a dear brother has told me about, and I've been listening to them quite a bit. The name of this group is called City Alight. City Alight. And they have this one song that greatly captures this sermon. Listen to this lyrics. So in, this, in these lyrics, you'll find a combination of striving, of losing, and of grace. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Father, we give you infinite praise, infinite honor to the degree that we can for the goodness of your Son. Father, the worth of the gospel is of such eternal degree, Father, that our obedience pales in comparison to its worth. But Father, you said that you will keep us, and you've said in your word that you will produce in us the desire to obey you. And Father, I pray for this dear church. I pray for the struggling Christian who's repeatedly confronted with their sins. Father, encourage that dear brother and sister in Christ Illumine their minds to the truth of Scripture. And Father, produce in them a tremendous desire to want or to want to want to obey Christ. Father, we are powerless without your effective grace. And we pray that you would lead us to obey Philippians 1.27 in the way that we can here in this life. Cause us to fight, cause us to not be content with our sins, but to press on, knowing that you are good and that you are at work in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit.